Okay, um, when talking about how to study or interpret the Bible, uh, that's, uh, that's called hermeneutics. And the study of how to speak or even to preach, that's called homiletics. And so um, what we're going to kind of do tonight is hermeneutics, and what we're going to do tomorrow morning is more homiletics. Um, and this is not an exhaustive study by any stretch of the imagination. This is a crash course. Um, I, I developed this booklet, and I would go through it at length over several weeks, basically an hour a week with uh, guys in my church. I did it to train up uh, Sunday school teachers, and, and even uh, I did it with uh, young men in my church. Two of them uh, at the church I'm at now went into the ministry after going through this this program, and uh, I guess they saw, hey, this is something I can do. I, um, and so I'm not going to be able to go as in-depth. One of the things that I normally do in this is I have the people take, I give them each a passage of Scripture and have them outline it and do an outline. I'm not going to do that. That you know, I n- Normally I'll have people write a message and give it, and then I'll critique their speech. We're not going to have time for any of that. But hopefully uh, I can give you some pointers and some things. So maybe you um, just want to learn how to study the Bible better. You're going to get a benefit from this. Maybe you are a Sunday school teacher. I don't care if you're just teaching the little kids in Sunday school class. This will be a benefit to you and for some of you, maybe a, you do communion meditations or whatever. This could be a benefit for you. So um, I hope that you will uh, 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 be blessed. Um, I'm going to kind of, because it's a bigger group, I'm going to kind of just lecture through this. But during the break or after the session tonight or tomorrow during the breaks or after the sessions, uh, we're going to please feel free to come up to me and ask questions. If you've got the book, you can write a little note to yourself, write notes in this, write in this. Uh, there's there's going to be things that I say that speak to you that, wow, that's a good quote. I want to remember that, write that down. Just take some notes tonight. If you don't have a pen or a pencil and you need one, let Jake know. He can hook you up with a pen or a pencil, I think, And um, if anybody needs one. So um, we're going to start off, and, and the, the first of the stuff tonight, since we're only going to do two hours on it, we're going to kind of speed through some of it. I'm actually going to skip over some stuff. And if I get through the stuff tomorrow too quick, then we can come back and cover some of it. First thing we're going to talk about is, uh, the, in the teacher training program, is the Jethro Principle. And uh, this is justification for what we're doing, kind of. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It's, the following is the account from Exodus chapter 18, uh, with re- which records an episode in the life of Moses in which his father-in-law, Jethro, gives him some wise counsel. Now, this is Jethro, the, prince of Me- the, the priest of Med- Midian, not Jethro from Beverly Hillbillies, different Jethro. Um, and in this chapter, he, goes, he comes to Moses and it says, the next day Moses took his seat, to serve as judge for the people. And he stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what, this, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? So the, it's like going to the DMV, right? There was a really long line. There weren't enough workers. Uh, you're, you're, you were, it was a terrible uh, backlog. He was the only judge, and there's like two million people, and he's the only one trying cases. And so, um, isn't that the worst, though, when your father-in-law comes over and you're like, one of the, hey, check this out, look at all these people following me, Jethro, look how successful your son-in-law is. And then this, the father-in-law is like, um, 
what you're doing is not good. Isn't that the worst that the father-in-law's worst? And so uh, Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties to inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws. Show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from among all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But then... But have them bring the very difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide for themselves. They will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. See, there's a good son-in-law right there. He chose capable men from all Israel, made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times of the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. So for the very first time, we have the Israeli Supreme Court uh, with Moses as the Supreme Court, but then you would have all these other people who would judge things. So if it was an easy thing, he'd wrote down the laws. Here's, here's the judgments, okay? Well, what if it's what if it's in a gray area or you're not sure it's a tricky situation? There's always exceptions to rules, right? So if it's, if it's a hard case, then you move it up. And eventually, if it's very difficult, to get to Moses. That way Moses is only dealing with the most sticky situations. You don't have the Supreme Court uh, trying people for murder or for stealing or for, whatever, or for speeding or whatever. They're not dealing with those cases. The Supreme Court's only dealing with the most sticky and most difficult cases that go up through uh, and get appealed. And so Moses... Uh, sets up here uh, a, a concept that um, some people call the Jethro principle. I didn't come up with that clever title, but somebody did. And I didn't, and, and these things, I, like I said, uh, um, uh, I got this from uh, something the guy named Ken Kiefer did. So I got this from Ken Kiefer. I don't know where he got it. Um, uh, but I, I'm going to tell you guys if you use other people's material, that's good. Always use other people's material, especially if it's good. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just give them credit. So I got this from Ken Kiefer. Okay, anyway, uh, so here's the principles. Delegation, education, qualification, participation. Now, this principle is uh, done in the, New, in the New Testament. When they had a problem with all the widows who needed fed and the elders, they needed to be dealing with spiritual things, not the feeding of widows. They appointed deacons. And the deacons had to be qualified. So you delegate after you educate and they meet qualifications, then they participate. So that's the process. But before you can delegate to somebody, you have to make sure that they are qualified and educated. And then they can participate and help carry the load. And uh, if you're a preacher in a church, if you're elders in a church, Part of your responsibilities in those leadership positions is to delegate away tasks and to delegate away things so that everybody is ministering. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the elders, the overseers, and the evangelists, part of their job is to equip the saints for ministry. 
So it's not to do all the ministry. The preacher shouldn't be doing all the ministry. Or even just the elders or just the deacons. They're the leaders. Their responsibility is to quit people. You put a deacon in charge of buildings and grounds, say. Well, he shouldn't be doing everything in buildings and grounds all by himself. He's just the guy administrating, making the decisions. He should be finding somebody who's going to mow the yard or hiring somebody to mow the yard. Somebody's going to clean the church. Somebody's going to take care of the heating or the furnaces. He doesn't have to do it all himself. He can just delegate it all away. Get a whole bunch of people involved in the church, in serving. And that's the way it's supposed to be. The, the deacons, the elders, and the preacher aren't the ones who do it all. They're the ones who lead it all. And it's their job to delegate away as much of it as you can. As much of your ministry as you can get somebody else educated and qualified to do, you should. Uh, you know, get other people involved. Get them up praying in the service. Get other people involved in music. Get as many people teaching as you can. Get a people involved in uh, community meditations as you can. Get as many people serving in as many ways as you can. That's the point of an evangelist and an elder is not to do all the work. Well, why should I do it? That's what we hired him for. No, you hired him to be in charge of it and to educate and train you all to do it. You don't hire a, a general to go fight the war by himself. You hire the general to train the troops, organize the troops, make the calls, and send the troops out to win the, the battle. And the, he might end up going into battle with them and lead them into battle, but he doesn't do it all by himself. And that's the principle that's here. And that's why we need teachers. We need people who can teach Sunday school, who can teach kids, who can lead women's Bible studies, who can lead men's groups, who can lead small groups. We need more and more and more people who are able to teach. So in the New Testament, look what Jesus did. The, page 2. He appointed 12 designating them as apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He delegated. What, what started the church? Who started the church? Those, well, 11 of those guys. <laughs> One of them didn't make it. He, um, he was just hanging around. But the, the other 11 started the church. And they were the ones who he delegated to. So we see with Jesus, did he delegate? to others to do ministry? Yes. And he educated him. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach to the other towns of Galilee. Notice that Jesus' number one priority was to train the 12. More important than his ministry to the masses was his ministry to the 12. And I've talked with you guys about this before in our different classes, that the most important thing that a preacher does, or elders, is not the lessons that they just teach to the whole congregation, but the men that they train to come after them. The, the, the number one thing that every evangelist and elder should be focused on is finding some younger, qualified men who you're training up to be leaders to grow the church. And a church can't grow if the number of people in leadership can't grow. And the church can't survive into the future if there's not another generation coming up. And quite frankly, over the past uh, 80 years, the church has massively failed at that responsibility. Because we had this paradigm that the, that the preacher or the preacher and the elders do everything and everybody else just sits back and watches. And that's, that's against what Jesus did. Jesus delegated, Jesus educated, 
Jesus qualified. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. We need to make sure that we find qualified people. Not just anyone should be a teacher. James says this, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so we need to be uh, wise in, in picking who we're going to train to do this. And so, because not everybody is qualified to be a teacher. Some people just don't have the ability to teach. Does that make them not as good a Christian? No, they're just as good a Christian. Um, does that make the teachers better than them? No. Some people have different gifts. Some people work with their hands. Uh, some people are supportive. Some people, teaching is not their gift. But some people, teaching is their gift. And you need to find people who are qualified and able to do it and train them. And then participation. Look at Luke 10, 1 and 2. The Lord, after he appointed the 72 others, sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where the, he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest. You see, we need people who are participating. There's a lot of work, and there's more work than there are people. And so one of the things that he told us and commanded us to do was to pray for workers. And that should be on the prayer list. I mean, Jesus told us to pray for that. It should be on the prayer request list at every church. In their bulletin, when it lists the prayer requests, that ought to be one of them. Not just the, the list of people with cancer and heart problems and, or who need jobs or Aunt Gertrude's bunion that needs fixed. We, we need to be praying for spiritual things. And one of the things that we need to be praying for is workers for the harvest. And then Romans 10, 13 through 71. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one whom they believe in and the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accept the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our message. And consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. It is through the word of Christ, the word of God, your scripture, that faith comes. But how can they hear it if no one teaches it and how can they teach it if no one is sent you need to be training people and sending out people to uh to share the gospel of jesus christ and to teach people uh in sunday schools and to lead small groups we need to be training people to teach and now you got this cool little book now you got material you can use to train them. Uh, it needs to happen it's something that's really needed um, and we need uh, wisdom not just knowledge look at first corinthians 8 1 through 3 now about food sacrifice to idols we know that we all possess knowledge knowledge puffs up but love builds up the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know what he ought to know but the man who loves god is known by god so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world, but there, the, God, the Lord of God is one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God and Father from whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people who are still accustomed to idols, uh, that when they teach the, eat such food, that they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. 
And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do eat, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone is weak in conscience, sees that you have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So his, this weak brother from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sit, sin against your brothers in this way, you wound their weak conscience and you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will, eat, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. The point of that passage is just because you know something and because something is true doesn't mean you can handle it wisely, right? Like there's lots of stuff that you know, to, that you know is true, but it's not wise to say. If you're married, I, you, at any length of time, you figured this out. Uh, there's some things that, and, you, we, and I'm not just talking about guys to girls. I'm talking about ladies to their husbands because they, you know, uh, husbands have their own insecurities. Um, we, there are things that you're smart enough to not say, even though they're true. And with me, sacrifice the idol. An idol was nothing. And, it, you know, they knew that. But if they went and ate meat sacrificed to an idol with that knowledge, and somebody who's still accustomed to idols, who still thought it was worship, saw you doing it, they would go and eat and maybe part- and sin in doing it because they're actually worshiping an idol when they do it. And you got them to sin because they didn't understand what you understood. It's kind of like, and, and the example I've, I often give is, um, I'll go eat at Applebee's because it's a restaurant that allows your family to go in that serves alcohol. But I won't go down to Wits End in Whiteland, which is a bar that serves food. Now, here Wits End's got great cheeseburgers. I've never had one. But I don't go into Wits End because people go into Wits End to get drunk and pick up women, not to have the cheeseburger. The cheeseburger is the incidental. It's a bar. You've got to be 21 to walk in the building. And so I know I wouldn't drink. I could go into Wits End, order a cheeseburger and a water, and not sin. I didn't do anything sinful. But what if one of my members at my church sees me going in a bar and it destroys my witness? Or worse, it emboldens them to go drink. Well, if a preacher goes to the bar, I can go to the bar too. So my knowledge, my... Uh, understanding if it if i act in such a way that don't consider them could cause them a problem right like is there anything wrong with you uh taking your gun and uh going outside and shooting and then taking the gun and setting it on your kitchen table no nothing immoral about that but if you do that and leave the gun sitting there with a two-year-old in the room you're a fool you're dumb you're gonna get that kid killed because they're not mature enough to handle and understand what you know. You don't leave the keys in your car with the kids sitting there. They're going to get over in the driver's seat. and t- you know, you, You're careful about that kind of stuff with a kid. And the same thing's true with their spiritual maturity. So there's a difference between knowledge, knowing a truth, and wisdom, using the knowledge in the wisest way. And so we don't want to just be imparters of uh, knowledge, but of wisdom. 
We want to be wise, and we want to seek it. Look what Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We have to have a hunger and a thirst and be seeking for, for righteousness and wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 2, 1 through 9. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight, you cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of the faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair and every good path. If we're going to understand what's right and just and fair and every good path, we're going to understand not just have knowledge of the Bible, but have wisdom. We have to seek it. Do you ever wonder how some people come to church, they sit right beside each other in the pew, they hear the same sermon from the same preacher, one of them internalizes it, finds wisdom from it, goes out and lives a godlier life and a productive Christian life because of it, and the other person doesn't. They hear it, they hear the same thing, they know the same story. Maybe he preaches on David and Goliath. They know the same details of the same story about a young boy named David who went and fought Goliath. But one of them applies it to their life, that's wisdom, and the other one does not. The wise man who built his house on the rock, Jesus said, is the one who hears my words and then does what? Puts them into practice. But the fool is the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice. And so if we're going to teach people, it's not enough to teach them there was a boy named David and there was a giant named Goliath. You're not just teaching them facts and knowledge. You need to be able to deliver to them wisdom so that they can easily apply it and make it applicable to their life. And when we study the Bible, we need to look for the application. The reason some people study the Bible and it's boring is because they're not applying it. You know, there's all kinds of uh, mathematics that's boring as, as can be. But when you start applying the mathematics to help you build something, then it gets exciting. When you start using the math to figure out mysteries in the universe, it gets exciting. When you start using math to, to uh, create things like a, design an airplane or design a car, then math gets fun. Because it's applied. It's one thing to have knowledge. It's another thing to have wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5-6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but all your ways acknowledge in Him, and He will make your paths straight. So why do we need to be studying the Bible and seeking wisdom? Like it's hidden treasure. Because in your Scripture, down in your Bible, there's wisdom there. There's not just didactic information about events in the past or doctrine. There's applicable, applicable wisdom and knowledge that will make you smarter. It'll help your marriage. It'll help your finances. It'll help you uh, in your personal relationships. It'll help you have peace and joy and contentment. It'll help your health. It'll help your rest. It'll, there are so many blessings to studying God's Word, and you'll be a blessing to others. You can make eternal differences in the lives of other people.
Okay? Now, I don't remember a lot of people from when I was a little kid, do you? Not a lot of people. But I remember somebody from when I was two and three years old. I can tell you her name. Martha Flora, my first Sunday school teacher, who I loved, who taught me Scripture. Another person who every time I teach things that come out of my mouth were things taught by her. Her name was Janice Phillips. She was my Sunday school teacher and my dad's secretary for 18 years. She was my dad's secretary. But she was my Sunday school teacher in, in elementary. And absolutely taught me so many things. The whole idea of prophecy, that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, Jan taught me that. I'll never forget her going through Daniel, showing us the prophecies in Daniel and how Jesus fulfilled it and how history fulfilled it, blowing my mind. And that made me believe it. Now it wasn't just, well, mom told me Jesus was real or dad told me Jesus was real. Now I had reasons to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God from history. Outside of my parents just saying so, I had real proof that I got at 9, 10 years old from Jan Phillips. Your ability to influence people by teaching a Sunday school class, by teaching a small group, by teaching a youth group, by teaching a ladies' Bible study, by, by going into a, a, a nursing home and, and, and teaching a group there, by going into uh, um, you know, some sort of uh, ministry with uh, addicts or helping people in, in a celebrate recovery kind of program, you can make a real distinct difference because you can be the conduit through which the wisdom of God flows into people. And that's why learning to study the Bible and gain the wisdom of the Bible and apply it to your life is so important because that allows you to pass that on. Now, how do we, how do we study the Bible? 2 Peter 3, 15-18 Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. As our dear brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you might be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. What are the excuses for not studying the Bible that people have? People have all kinds of reasons. Well, I shouldn't study the Bible. Maybe you have given some excuses to yourself why you don't study the Bible. Let's look at some of them. Number one, well, I don't understand it. Well, of course you don't. It's a difficult, sometimes, it's a difficult book to understand. It, it requires work. Everything that I'm going to teach you this weekend requires effort and work, and it's not easy. None of it is. It's not easy to go out and mow the yard. That's work. It's not easy to keep your house nice. It's not easy to keep your body healthy. 
It's not easy to go to work and make money. Making money isn't easy. And keeping it is even harder. It's everything in this world is work. The world was cursed. God said, by the sweat of your brow, everything is difficult. Just making these booklets today was like pulling teeth. Cut my finger. I mean, I can't even tell you. I'm not going to bore you with all the obstacles. I felt like the devil himself was trying to keep me from making these books today. You wouldn't believe what all I went through have these stupid books i nothing's easy in life nothing good anyway the easy things are evil and they end up destroying everything the good things every good thing that you want to build or maintain takes hard work sweat effort literally physically or mentally it takes work. And the studying the Bible, I can't understand it. Yes, you can. You're just being lazy because you don't want to do the work. I don't think that anyone really knows what the Bible means. Well, we're going to see that's not true. And you can know what the Bible means. Now, can you know every part of every aspect of the Bible? Of course not. But there's nothing in it that you can't figure it out. The Bible means different things to different people. That's true, but that's because people are interpreting it wrong and there's a devil confusing people. But though the Bible does mean different things to different people, God only meant one thing when he said it and you can figure out what he meant. Today, one of the things that annoys me, people get together, they have a, a home Bible study. It's less a home Bible study where people are giving out this is what the Bible says and it's more pooled ignorance. You know, what is this verse mean to you i don't want to know what the verse means to the guy next to me i want to know what god meant when he wrote it it doesn't matter what it means to the guy next to me what it matters is what is god saying and that's all you need to figure out yeah well it means different things that so what there's no the constitution means different things to different people either, but it's still you know different laws people interpret different ways but somebody's right and somebody's wrong because there's something that the law, the guy who wrote the law meant and there's something he didn't mean. It used to be we tried to figure that out. Today, we just interpret it any way we want. We, uh, we can never come to agreement because it's subjective. No, the Bible is not subjective. The Bible is very matter of fact, at least on the important things. Now, there's some things that the Bible doesn't speak to. And yeah, we can each have our own subjective opinion on that. It's like belly buttons and opinions, you know, everyone's got one. Well, except Adam and Eve. I don't figure they had one. But anyway, um, people can make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. Well, yeah, you can. You can twist the scripture. And we're going to talk about that. But that doesn't make it right. You can know what God says. Why should we believe the Bible. Okay, I want to look at that. Look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, who doesn't, who doesn't want to be ashamed? A what? It requires work. Effort. You cannot be a student of the Bible that you need to be if you don't put in the time. You've got to do some reading. 
You got to ask some questions. You got to look to multiple sources. You'll have to study some history. You'll have to study some context. You'll have to, you'll have to learn maybe to use some tools on your computer or to use an old school concordance. But it's not, it's, it's not rocket surgery. Okay? It's something you can do. Um, so, can you understand the Bible? Yeah, the Bible's understandable. Notice, only some things are hard to understand. We already read that in 2 Peter 3.16. Not everything in the Bible is hard to understand. Maybe not even most things once you get the basics down. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. But it's just some things. Not the really, really important things. They're not hard to understand. In fact, it's pretty simple, the gospel message. And since we're told to study the Bible, it's inferred there's value in that. God wouldn't say, study to show yourself approved if there was no value to studying the Bible. I guess the first thing to know when it comes to studying the Bible is it requires that, study. Nobody wants to study anymore. Nobody wants to memorize Nobody wants to internalize. Nobody wants to go deep. Nobody wants to read. Nobody wants to, uh, they want everything spoon-fed to them like widow babies. They want, they want to get milk. Nobody wants meat. Look, if you want a good meal, it requires a little effort. Sure, it's easy to eat junk food. That comes pre-packaged, ready to kill you as you eat it. But if you want a healthy meal, or a good tasting meal, it requires some preparation. It requires tenderizing the meat or marinating or chopping and cutting and cooking and putting it in the oven and mixing and getting doses right. It requires a recipe. It requires work to get a really good, healthy meal. And the same thing's true of the Bible. Next, the top of the page of page six. Since we're going to be judged by it, it's inferred we can understand it. Uh, you better be able to understand the Bible because it says that you're going to be judged by Jesus said, I'm not going to judge you. I came to the world to save the world. But there is a judge for the one who hears my words. The very words I have spoken will judge you. You, you better be able to understand the Bible because you're going to be judged by it on the day of judgment. And since we're going to be punished for mishandling it, we can understand it. <laughs> It says that people, if you mishandle the Word of God, you're going to be punished. So yeah, you can rightly divide the Word of truth. And it's something we should work at. So you can understand it with some work. Remember before, if you want to find wisdom, you have to search for it like what? Hidden silver. Is it easy to find silver and gold? No. That's why it's rare. That's why it's worth something. See, the things that are worth the most in life require more effort. A bad marriage doesn't require any effort. A good marriage requires lots of effort. Bad kids don't require any effort. Good kids require a lot of effort. Um, making no money or having a bad job, that doesn't require any effort. Making good money and being successful at your work, that requires a lot of effort. Misunderstanding the Bible and being a simpleton when it comes to the Scripture, 
doesn't take much. Just come and sit once a week and listen to the preacher and go home and don't do anything else and you'll be biblically ignorant for the rest of your life. But if you want to be a student of the Bible, then you've got to take the effort and get into it. That's why I've encouraged so many of you who come to Tuesday night class to take the Diploma of Biblical Study from Summit Theological Seminary. And I, I was very excited to see, I don't know, four or five people uh, decided to do that at the end of the class this semester and decided to take that. I'm excited about that because I know that in two years, they're going to know more than most Bible college graduates. And they're going to have great Bible knowledge. And I know that there's nothing that transforms a person's life more. I remember one time I was at Jerome Christian Church and I did this 90 Days with Jesus program and I had people read through all four Gospels in 90 days. And everybody was reading a chapter a day. And This one guy, he, he didn't like reading, he wasn't very good at reading. And so I said, look, if you don't like reading, you want to listen to the Bible, you can get the Bible on CD. Now, of course, now with the internet in modern times, uh, you can just listen on your phone. You know, it's right there. But back then, I encouraged them to buy these CDs. And so they bought, they would buy these CDs of the New Testament. And I don't know what it was. It was like, it was like 15 bucks and you had the whole New Testament on CD. And he plopped it in his car and he'd listen to a chapter of the gospel a day on his way to work and on his way home. And then he would answer these little questions. And his name was Pat. And Pat came to life spiritually. He was just a church attender with his wife for years. And when he read the words of Jesus every day and thought about it, it got him excited. He got involved in a small group. He got involved in serving in the church. He, they, they started helping with VBS. They started helping with kids program. They got excited. They got involved. Because the word of God and the words of Jesus and spending just a chapter a day with Jesus and then thinking about what Jesus said and answering some questions and spending some time in prayer, it just lit Pat up. And it made a huge difference in his life. And I'm telling you, building that habit, and it didn't happen the first day he read the first chapter, but after 90 days of that, of that change, of that habit, he didn't stop. The 90 days was up, he kept going into Acts. He just kept going. He was doing a chapter a day. He was just going. Then he got to the end, he starts back at Genesis. He just was going through the Bible. Allowing God to transform form him because it something we should work at it should be a habit in our life and we gain approval by our use of it you see you want to be a workman who's approved if you want god's approval then you need to correctly handle his word you need to learn how to read the bible and we're, that's what we're going to talk about in our second hour tonight is is how the how but you need to learn how to read god's word so you can take away from it what you need to know. Um, and truth is knowable. It's a choice we can make. Ephesians 5.17 Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. If God commands you and he says, understand what my will is, evidently you can. The Bible, it's knowable. And it comes from reading God's word. Ephesians 3.4 In reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Are things about Jesus and about God a mystery to you? You don't understand what God's doing? You don't understand? The, then read more. The more you read, the more you'll know. And the more you know, the more you'll be able to understand the next thing you read. It's like putting together a puzzle. Every time you put another piece in, it becomes clearer and clearer what the picture is 
you know, when I do a puzzle, the first thing I do, I don't know about you guys, is I get all the flat pieces and I build the edge. And a lot of times I like to cheat and look at the picture. Okay, okay, this looks here. And I'll put stuff by the color where it goes. And then it's, when it starts coming together, and by the end, it's getting real easy. You start with the frame and then you work your way through. And once you get the basics of the Bible down, once you learn the basics, then when you start learning something, you read something else, you'll know where it fits. You'll know how to place it in, and it'll all start to make a beautiful picture that you couldn't see before. It was a puzzle. It was, it was a mixed up mess of pieces that you didn't understand. But the more you read, the more you'll understand. And the more you'll understand, the more you'll get the next thing you read. It's just the problem is, is no one invests enough time into it to get to the point where they're able to feed themselves. You've got to study enough and get the basics down and understand those things enough to where you're ready to study for yourself. When a kid's little, they don't got any teeth and they can't eat meat. All they can drink is milk and then eventually we can give them some pureed food, you know, some baby food. But eventually the teeth pop out and then they can start chewing and they can start eating and they get a little older they can start eating more solid food and they, and they they get the macaroni and then they get the mashed potatoes and then then they get the the beans and they get the carrots and then next thing you know they're they're chomping down on hamburger and then next thing you know they're eating steak but even when they're old enough to eat steak mom and dad have to use the knife and the fork and cut it up for them and that's part of what leadership in the church should be doing is giving bite-sized portions to the church so they can chew it up and eat it so they can eventually know how to cut it themselves. So eventually you're not leaning on your preacher. You're not leaning on your elders. You're not leaning on those people to understand it. You're able to cut the meat yourself and eat it. You can take a hard passage you don't understand. And because of what you know, you can cut it up and rightly divide the word of truth. And you can study and understand for yourself. It just takes time and effort to get there. And you don't have to be a genius. I do it. So you can do it. Truth is knowable and it's understandable if you try. 2 Corinthians 1.13 For we did not write you anything you cannot read or understand. That's Paul. Now Peter says, some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. So is some of it hard? Yes. But is any of it so hard you can't understand it with some study? No. You can understand the Bible and if you don't, it's nobody's fault but yours. You can't go before God someday, well, it's just too difficult, God. I just couldn't get it. Uh Uh-uh. That's a lie. Paul didn't write anything you can't understand with a little bit of study. A little bit of elbow grease, a little bit of work, and you can understand. Why? Because the Bible's logical. Acts 17.2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue on Sabbath days and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The Bible's reasonable. You can understand it by just using logic. That's why what is in it is readable and understandable because it's logical. Look at Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. We can understand God's will by just using reason. If you take the information, rub a couple brain cells together, and use some logic, it'll make sense. It's, it's not that difficult. If you'll invest the time to read, to study, to understand, to get a commentary. 
to, to listen to some sermons, to ask some questions, to have people that are knowledgeable that you can at first lean on and have them cut up the steak for you so you can chew it. Uh, find out the answers. Look, the internet's an amazing resource now, and you've got to be careful uh, what sources you use. But if you read around and read multiple sources, you can come to a knowledge of stuff. If you want some websites to help you, I mean, I can throw you some websites to look at. But there's a lot of information out there, and it's, all, it's never been easier in the history of the world to study the Bible. There's never been a time where we had more uh, historical and archaeological information to help understand when it was written and why it was written and what it's about. There's never been a time when God's Word was easier to understand than right now. And what's sad is there's never been a time when the church was more biblically ignorant. At the time when it's easiest to understand is when the fewest people understand it. The Bible's origin. Above all, you must understand no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Um... For the prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke by God as they were carried along by the Holy Scripture. Spirit, the Scripture is from God's will, and it's not from impersonal interpretation. We're not trying to figure out your interpretation of the Bible or mine. We're trying to figure out what did God mean when He wrote it. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17 From infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, turning in righteousness, so the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It makes us wise for salvation because faith comes by hearing. John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Remember, sanctify means make them holy. Make them holy in the truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In John 1.1 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word for word in John chapter 1 is logos. It's where we get the English word logic. In Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. If Jesus is the Word and is the truth, then the Word is truth. If Jesus is the Word of God in human form, and Jesus is the truth, in human form, then the Word of God is the truth. And that's certainly what the Bible teaches us. He chose to give us birth through the Word of truth. That's what gave us spiritual birth, and that's what will grow us. And we want to sanctify them by the truth, for thy word is truth. So we are going to stop right here, and we are going to take a five-minute break, and then we're going to come back and when we come back, we'll talk about, we've talked about why we should study the Bible and that, the, the point of it. And now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some ways that you can use, tools you can use to study the Bible. We'll talk about that for an hour. So go, go have some cookies and coffee and we'll come back in five minutes. Okay, I want you to skip ahead from page 8 to page 16. And if we have time later, we'll come back to that stuff. Um, it, it is self-explanatory, page 8 to 18. You can kind of read through on your own if you want. 
uh, as well. It's reasons people misunderstand the Bible. But I want to get to the practical stuff um, uh, of some tips for studying the Bible. And some of the, a lot of this comes from uh, George L. Fall, my dad. This is stuff he taught me, and these are things I ripped out of different materials of his. Okay, so um, again, a lot of this material I have borrowed, changed up a little bit, made it my own. But if you read this, you go, oh, I've read something like that before that your dad put out. That's because I'm just plagiarizing unabashedly, so, uh, which isn't really plagiarism when you give him credit. So I want you guys to, to know some of this is, from my experience, some of this, a lot of this is stuff that my dad taught me. Um, and who knows who taught him? Somebody taught him, I'm sure. Okay, discipline and studying and how to do it. Page 16, you see that? A, have a place to study where that's all that you do there. You're immediately in study mode. Have a desk, have a tape, maybe it's your kitchen table. Have some place where you're not distracted, where when I go there, it's to study the Bible. And it's not the place with the most comfortable chair where you can fall asleep. The Bible says much study is a weariness of the flesh. It will put you to sleep. So when you study somewhere, have a place. In my house, uh, I have a desk in a study. Um, I've always had a study in my home uh, if I didn't have one at the church and, and a place to work. A place where you go and focus on that. I cannot, I always taught this and I always said this because it was in my dad's stuff and I thought, well, it seems like a good plan and it was something I did. But I never understood the full extent of that. When I was in college, I had a little desk that I studied at in college. You know, in your dorm room there was a bed and then there was the desk area and I'd always sit at the desk and do my work. So I never really didn't have that. One of the things that happened is when uh, I went to Christ Church and um, we had an office area and then we, we stopped renting that office and um, about the same time uh, that we stopped renting the office, we rented another building and had a church in it and I didn't put an office in it. I thought, I'll just work from home. And the reason I thought that is because, uh, as many of you know, in 2013, um, my wife left me. And so I was by myself raising three kids, 16, 15, and 9 at that time, on my own, full-time raising them, keeping them, and trying to do ministry. So I had to be at home because, especially when the older two were gone, because the 9-year-old, you know, I couldn't leave her by herself all the time. So there's lots of times where I just had to be at home. I had to start working from home. And I thought, well, that won't be a problem. It'll be easy. No. When you are sitting in the living room on the couch with your computer trying to study and the TV's going and the kids are coming in and the dog wants let out and the kids need this and the, hey, dad, where's my this and blah. I've realized that I can get done, let me put it this way. If I had two hours, you give me a topic in two hours, alone, I'll write you a killer sermon. Give me two hours and a topic, and I'll write a sermon on it. You give me ten hours where I'm constantly interrupted, 
I won't have a sermon yet. You give me two hours uninterrupted, I'll knock it out. You keep interrupting me, you only give me 15 minutes of study at a time for 10 hours, and I'll... I'll uh, uh, uh. You've got to have uninterrupted time. You need to have a place that is your place, you know, the den, uh, or the you know, place to study, a place to buy yourself. Jesus talked about this in prayer. Go off by yourself in a closet. Sometimes you need to be by yourself. He would go by, by himself alone to pray. Sometimes you need that alone time. And when it comes to studying the Bible, you need to have a place where you can get in study mode. And you will get more out of the Bible if you have a place where you go that, that's nice and, it, and it's, you know, it's neat and it's clean. And if you keep your desk messy, you're not going to study as well. Having a nice situation. If I sit down at a nice clean desk with a cup of coffee and I'm in the right atmosphere and I'm left alone, I can be very productive. To have a place, have a time to study, set hours without interruption if possible. One of the things I used to do when I was at Jerome and I had a secretary, which was the most wonderful blessing in the world to have a secretary. Oh, to have a secretary. I wouldn't have cut my finger today. Um... If you, to, one of the nice things is I would come in and certain days of the week I had hours where people could come and see me and talk to me if they went to kind of open hours. And then I had times that I would go in in the morning. Uh, I'd be there at seven and I'd do some prayer and stuff. And my secretary, Debbie, would get there and I'd say, Debbie, no calls unless somebody died till noon. And I would have from eight to noon and I would write, I would study, I would create PowerPoint, I would, and I was so much more productive when I had that uninterrupted time. Have a time to study. And one of the things I used to do, and I was much more productive, is every day before she got there, I would for an hour do, I would write an article on something. I used to have a, a website that I submitted articles to called The Scripturist. I don't think the website's even around anymore. But I used, to, I used to contribute something five days a week to The Scripturist, which was a website from a whole bunch, several of my college friends were involved in. We'd write articles and post them on thescripturist.org or whatever it was. And those art, every day, and I still have all those articles, and I use them all the time. I've used them in different times. Because, but back then I was productive because every day... From eight to nine, I wrote a short little article that I could post on the internet. And you do that day after day after day after day after day after day, and that stuff piles up. And if you've ever gone to Hillsborough Family Camp and seen the multiple tables with all the material for something, and I remember people come up, George, when did you have time to do all that? And he's like, I didn't have a TV. When did he find the time? Because he would, at times, you know, uh, sequester himself and write and you need to have time a set time have a set place at a set time if I don't set the time each day when I'm going to work out a lot of times the workout gets missed if I have a time every okay this time in the morning from seven to eight I'm going to be at LA fitness working out then I do it every day. Some things, we just need to set a schedule. 
Every day, at the same time, you probably brush your teeth and shower and eat and get ready in the morning. You, you have a set time each day where you do, around lunch, I eat lunch. Around dinner, I eat dinner, you know. Each time, maybe you have a time when you, well, it's time for bed. If you don't, if you're not scheduled like that, well, then your life's a mess and I'm feeling sorry for you. Because you have to schedule certain things. And you need to schedule time for study. If you're going to be the kind of person that teaches, you can't just be a casual student. If you're going to teach Sunday school or a small group or, you know, whatever, or you're going to preach, you have to set aside time. Here is the time I am going to do this sermon. And when I was at Jerome, I had to have the PowerPoints and certain things by certain times in the week so that the worship minister knew what songs to get so that the bulletin could be made so that the little notes that go in the bulletin could be done. Everything had to be done by, by Thursday. And on Saturday, all I'm doing is rehearsing the sermon. Um, I'm going over the sermon on Saturday so that I can do it like clockwork because back then I had, to, I had to do three services. So I had to preach the same sermon three times within a certain amount of window and that I couldn't go over. If I went over my sermon, then you were bumping into the other services and messing up the whole schedule. So it had to be like clockwork. And so I had to have it down. And so you have to have time to do that. So if you're going to be a preacher, you're going to need to learn to be very disciplined. But if even if you're going to teach Sunday school or you just want to be a serious student of the word of God, you need to set a time of day. Go to bed an hour earlier and get up an hour earlier and study in the morning. Because if you do it at night, you're probably going to fall asleep. Have a time when you do it. Maybe it's your lunch hour. You know, some of you might be uh, retired and you could sit whenever you want. But have a time every day without interruption, if possible. Not always possible, especially if you're a parent. But a time of without interruption. Have study tools within reach. Uh, I, I recommend uh, online Bible software. Uh, uh, this, you can tell, is 20 years old because I don't even know if online Bible software still exists. Uh, I recommend uh, BibleGateway.com. That's a website I use every week. I use BibleGateway.com to get on there and to read a scripture on, on my computer, do something on my computer. Uh, I recommend having a um, Haley's Bible Handbook. If you don't own a Haley's Bible handbook, get yourself a Haley's Bible handbook so you can, you can look certain stuff up. I recommend you have Bible study tools. Maybe it's a concordance or something like that that you might need. Um, you know, we can talk about that at another time. The point is, have yourself some tools. Have good lighting. Don't be in the dark. Uh, don't be under neon lights. <laughs> If possible, don't be under neon lights. Get yourself good lighting. Um, Google sometime how bad neon lights are for anything. Um, one of the first things I did, we moved into this carpet store that we turned into church. First thing I did is take out the neon lights and put in recessed LED lighting, which is excellent. And uh, have good lighting where you are so that you can read so it's bright. You're not like in a sleepy atmosphere. Um, don't study in bed or get too comfortable. Okay? Don't get in your PJs and snuggle up under the covers and fall. I, don't, I always fall asleep. Look, for devotional, for recreational Bible reading, fine. Fall asleep in your bed reading the Bible. That's cool. But if you're studying, if you're there to study, 
then have an atmosphere where you're not too comfortable. Take study break, breaks. Exercise or workout. Gets the blood flowing. Clears the brain. So if you're going to study for a Bible, you're going to write a sermon. Now this, this, I wrote this for somebody who wants to preach. Okay? Or a person who's going to be a regular teacher. So they're going to, this is more than just a 15 minute Bible study every morning for devotional purposes. I'm talking about a person who's going to teach. Studying the Bible in order to teach. So you're going to, it's going to be hours. So if you're, if you're going to write a sermon or you're going to write a Sunday school lesson, okay, um, I'm going to write this lesson and I'm going, and I'm already kind of tired. Exercise first. Do some jumping jacks. Get the blood flowing. Just like, you know, when you're driving your car and you get sleepy, you pull over to a gas station, you do some jumping jacks, you open up the window, put cold air on, you know, you smack yourself in the face, whatever. You wake yourself up. For me, the thing that helps me stay awake when I'm driving a car is not drinking coffee. I, the only way that, that I can drink coffee to stay awake is if I drink so much of it, I have to go to the bathroom. Um, but drinking coffee, the caffeine doesn't do anything for me. It just doesn't phase me. Um, I chew gum, though, and I can't fall asleep. Something about chewing gum keeps the blood flowing in my brain or something. You know, if, uh, and I'm an ugly gum chewer. I don't chew a lot of gum because I'm not, I, I chew with my mouth open. It's embarrassing. I'm like a cow. <laughs> Chewing the cud, you know. But, uh, but if you're, sometimes when I'm studying, I will chew gum because it keeps me alert. What works for me might not work for you. Whatever works for you for keeping you awake. Uh, you know, do what you need to do um, to, to get up every once in a while and clear your brain. When I was, a, when I was studying for college, when it, dad had taught me that trick for college. And if, you know, you know remember finals week? When you, you know, and you got to study all this and cram all this information in. I would study for 45 minutes and I'd get up for 15 minutes and I'd go do something, clear my head, and then I'd go back to it for another 45 minutes. And that was just a thing that I had. And when I when I am studying and I'm involved with something, I might get up, I might walk around the room, I might stretch, you know, do some squats, get the blood flowing, and then go back to it. Um, take notes. Keep a pen or recorder by your bed for dream-produced ideas. And now you think, well, boy, Kendall, you're a weirdo. Well, yeah, uh, I am. But I'm telling you, the Bible teaches us to meditate on things. If you study something, you're writing a sermon, okay? Next Sunday... Jake's gone and I'm filling in for the preacher. Or next Sunday I'm teaching the adult Bible study and I got to teach on this topic. I was given this topic to you. And you're studying, you're reading on it, you're reading on it, and you still don't have it all done yet and you're thinking about it and there's a hard question. There's something, you know, how am I going to teach this? How am I going to illustrate this? You're, you're thinking on it, you're thinking on it. You study it for several hours and then, okay, well, I'll study again tomorrow. And then you go and you have supper and you watch some TV with your wife and hang out with your kids. And then you go to bed that night and you lay down in bed and you go off to sleep and uh, then in the morning you wake up and you're in that weird la-la land between sleep and wake and you have a genius idea. Have a pen and a paper or a recorder, a little digital recorder is what I use now. I used to use a little tape one. Remember the little tapes? You have a little tape recorder. That's what my dad always used. In fact, the other day I found those little tapes. I got them when he passed and I was listening to some of his voice anyway record yourself record those things for me sometimes too and i don't have a recorder there but sometimes it, stuff hits me when i'm driving in the car or in the shower because your mind is just kind of whoa and then all of a sudden you're like oh because 
if you will fill your mind with a problem and with a bunch of information, sometimes it'll process, you know? It's kind of like you say, hey, what's that guy's name that you're like, oh, I can't remember. Oh, I don't know. You couldn't remember his name. You couldn't remember his name. And you go to bed that night and you wake up at two in the morning. John Doe, that was his name. It'll come to you 10 hours later. You know what I'm talking about? You've had this happen, right? So when those moments, and, and some of dad's best sermons, and honestly, some of mine, came from dreams or half asleep, half awake moments where you have this epiphany. You're studying it, you study. Now that won't happen. You won't have that output 10 hours later if you don't have the input 10 hours before. If you don't do the hard study and the hard work in your conscious mind, your subconscious mind won't produce a, a gym later. If you want to have that aha moment, then you've got to put in the hard work before. But sometimes you'll have those you know, moments of clarity and be ready for those and take notes. Write down your thoughts. We're going to talk about tomorrow how to outline passages. Outline it. If you're going to teach on a passage, outline it. There's nothing that gives you clarity like putting stuff in order in your mind. Ordering it in your mind allows you to understand it in a way that allows you to communicate it. You can't communicate what you haven't logically ordered in your mind. So take notes. Um, always carry a book with you to read. Um, it says, give diligence to reading. A man who never reads will never be read. A man who never quotes will never be quoted. And he who does not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. Charles Spurgeon. I love that quote. Um, you guys, I read probably 10, 12 books a year. At least one a month of somebody else. Uh, an apologetic book. Uh, a book on Ezekiel. Um, r- right now I'm reading a, a Francis Chan book. Not my first Francis Chan. Uh, I read stuff um, all the time. I'm constantly reading books. If I'm going to study on a topic to teach a class, I'll read multiple books. I read multiple books on Ezekiel. I, read, I always read, if I'm going to study something or teach on something, I'm going to read multiple stuff. I'm going to read everything my dad wrote on it. I'm going to read stuff from uh, commentaries that... Uh, sometimes from the commentaries of the college press. Um, I'm going to read other people's ideas and other thoughts. Multiple other people's ideas and thoughts. I'm not going to have one source that I draw from. I'm going to draw from multiple sources. And so sometimes studying the Bible requires reading. And, and um, you show me somebody successful. I mean really successful in life, at anything, I'll show you somebody who reads. And I don't, I don't care what field you, you talk about. You're not going to find a successful CEO, some rich dude of a major corporation that doesn't read a whole bunch of stuff. If you think that Bezos and Musk and all those other billionaires aren't reading a ton of books, you're, you just don't understand what's going on. They read. And you show me somebody who has amazing quotes that gets quoted all the time, it's because they read. 
People quote my dad all the time. Why? Because he was reading. He was constantly filling himself with information. Uh, C.S. Lewis, avid reader. Everybody's quoting C.S. Lewis all the time. Here he's been dead for 50 years. And he gets quoted all the time. Why? Because he was such an avid reader that he learned to produce profundities. And the person who quotes will be quoted themselves. The person who reads will someday be read. And the person who studies is a person who can teach. And so you need to do reading. Now maybe you're like me and you don't enjoy reading as, as much as you like listening. I'm better, now I'm a good reader and I'm a fast reader and I remember what I read, but I'm even better at what I listen to. So one of the things that I have on my phone is um, a, a program called Audible, okay? And on Audible, um, I've got a library of books. See all these books? I, I have, well, you probably can't see I, I've listened to all of those. When I am working out, when I'm lifting weights and I'm on the treadmill or I'm on the stair mill or whatever, I've got headphones in my he ears and I am listening to a book. So not only do I read, sometimes I listen. Constantly, uh, constantly, there are so many wonderful opportunities. And you've got a phone and Bluetooth in your car. And every, what if every day on the way to work and on the way back, you were listening to something? You know what my dad had is one of these little things. It was, you can wind it up to charge the, charge the batteries in it, or you could have a solar, or you can plug it in. But in it, it was produced by a company called Faith Comes By Hearing. And it had the, the Bible on it. It had the whole Bible and every night, I kid you not, every night as my dad went to sleep, he was listening. And he just let it play all night. Like, he would go to bed, turn on the Bible, and get up in the morning when he was time to get up and turn the Bible off. While he slept, the whole night, the Bible was being read to him. He's like, it's getting in my subconscious. <laughs> Listen to and read and read and read. Listen to tapes in your spare time. You can tell this is 20 years old. In the car while walking or exercising. Don't listen to tapes. Don't listen to CDs. Use your phone. But if you, got, if you still like CDs and tapes and you're still old school and you've got a Walkman, uh, go for it. If you, maybe you've got a record player. I don't know. Uh, maybe you've got an 8-track. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, listen to uh, sermons. There are a ton of sermon sites. Um, what, what's... Uh, What's the one? Oh. Faithfulpreaching.com. Go to faithful. You want to listen to good stuff? There's more stuff on there than you got time to listen to. Faithfulpreaching.com. Go to that. Faithfulpreaching.com. Listen to that every day. You listen to a sermon. There's George Fall on there. There's uh, Ed Bowsman. There's, I don't know. There's everybody and their dog on there. Uh, go listen to, to, to sermons. Always outline the text. Always take the passage you're studying and create an outline of it. Always, always, always outline the text. Set a limit on your television diet. Uh, shun it, don't watch to it or listen to it. Don't have the TV going in the background. Don't let there be distractions that are going to pull you away. You can't do two things at once. You just can't. I know some people say, I'm a good multitasker. No, you aren't. You're just, you switch back and forth, but you're not doing both at the same time. Uh, you're not, you can't multitask. And so, 
control your TV diet or whatever happens. And today, that was written 20 years ago again. Today I would say, get off of Facebook, Twitter, Truth, Social, whatever you're on. Don't be on there so much. Really limit it. Well, Kendall, I need to stay in contact with my family or I need to stay. Okay, fine. So you set an amount of time, 15 minutes per day or even less. Half an hour a week. I'm on this day, I'm going to look at my social media. The rest of the week, I'm going to, I'm going to study. Stop wasting all your time on social media. That's, now, you guys can say, you know, well, I had to get rid of Facebook. I pay somebody. <laughs> I pay somebody $75 a month to post things on Facebook for me and to run my website so that I don't have to get on. Because if I get on Facebook to post something, I'm going to see something you posted and I'm going to get curious. And next thing you know, I'm scrolling. I've lost in Facebook land. Two hours later, I come out of my days, slobber drooling down my... F at, after being in four arguments about politics, and one argument over speaking in tongues, and go, what am I doing with my life? I haven't got anything done today. I had to get rid of it. Maybe you have more self-control and are a better person and a better Christian than me. Good for you. I, for me, abstinence is easier than temperance. You know? So, some people, um, they can control their Facebook. They, they don't have any... I'm an extrovert and I'm curious and I'm nosy and I just don't get... I feel like... I learn things on Facebook about people I didn't want to know. I lose respect for friends and people because like, really? You posting that? Really? That's what, that's what you think? Really? I don't think I respect you as much anymore. I just, it was very unhealthy for me to, to be on there. I got rid of it. Um, be disciplined. Involve your wife and kids uh, in your special studies for conversational feedback. Talk to people about it. Your preacher, your friend, and, and even best, your wife and kids. Remember, I, I taught you guys in this class, teach your kids as you sit, as you walk, as you get up, as you lay down, as you eat, all the time. What a great thing if you spent, you got home from work and you spent an hour studying for Sunday school and then wife has dinner ready and you go in and you say, you know, I was just reading this and some people believe that it means this and some people believe that it means this. Kids, what do you think? My dad used to do that to me. Involve me in the conversation and taught me to think and to study and to consider and to meditate and to and have logic. Involve your wife. Involve your kids. Because I've seen something terrible happen. I've seen a man or a woman sometimes, I can think right now of a woman in my first church, who get really into Bible study and grow and leave their spouse behind and it causes a division in their marriage. 
grow, if you're married, grow together. Now, I want to speak just to the men here for a second. If you're a husband, it's your job to make sure your wife and your children are growing spiritually and to teach them. God tells the man of the family to teach the children. And he's also supposed to present his wife as a spotless bride to Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians. It's his responsibility. So men, especially I'm talking to you, do not feed yourself and not feed your wife and kids. What kind of, what kind of terrible husband would f- give himself food and feed himself physically, have a good meal, and let his wife and kids starve to death? We'd say that's a bad husband, wouldn't we? Well, how is that not even worse spiritually? To get into the Word and study the Word and become a teacher and, and get up and teach other people at church, but you never feed your own wife and get Involve your wife. And here's something else that I found is that we refer to our wives as our better half for a reason. They have insight and input, especially when it comes for you to teaching men and women, that you won't have on your own. Include them. Because they're going to have a, a different perspective that will help you have a broader understanding of what the people who you're going to teach to need. Involve your wife. Involve your kids. Don't outgrow your family, spiritually speaking. Um, subscribe to good magazines. Again, this is a 20-year-old. Unfortunately, there aren't as many good magazines anymore. But you can still get the, um, the Restoration Herald. I know I've seen it out there on a table. Grab one each time there's a new one and read it. Read the Restoration Herald. Sign up for the Gospel Unashamed. It's like dirt cheap. Have the Gospel Unashamed. It's the, the publication that um, Summit puts out. Get, sign up for the Gospel Unashamed. Sign up for the Restoration Herald. There's other people who have good uh, magazines and, and publications like that. Um, that are out there, sign up for some of those and get those. There's good websites. Uh, the Christian Restoration Association has a great website. You can see all of this stuff online too. There's online copies of the Gospel Unashamed and it's backdated. You can go back to the early 90s and read the Gospel Unashamed back to the 90s uh, if you want on Summit's website. Discuss ideas on coming lessons with others. Uh, have, some, have some people in your church, Christian friends, who you can discuss your lessons with. People you can bounce ideas off. Talk to your preacher. Talk to your elders. And use uh, Rudyard Kipling's six honest serving men. I had six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names were when, where, and why, what, and how, and who. Okay, this is probably one of the most important things I'm going to share with you this weekend. And for the studying the Bible part, probably the most important. A verse out of context is a pretext for a lie. You, remember how we said, some people said, well, you can make the Bible say anything. Yeah, you can if you take it out of context. The old joke you know, right, is, is this guy killed himself reading the Bible. 
poor Joe didn't know where to start, so he just put his finger down anywhere, and he read the verse, and Judas went out and hung himself. He thought, well, that's not very pleasant. So he just flipped over a few other pages and put his finger down anywhere, and it said, and Jesus said, go ye and do likewise. So he goes out and hangs himself. And that's how some people study the Bible. They pull a verse from here and pull a verse from there, and that is way out of context and make it say something it doesn't say. And so when we approach a verse, especially if it's only a verse, we need to back up and look what's written before it and after it and around it, who wrote it, why it was written, when it was written, what, what it's all about. Okay? If somebody said, should I get a tattoo or not? Is tattoos wrong? You know, and they go to some verse in the Old Testament where the law forbids it. Well, it says right there not to get a tattoo. Yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. There might be some New Testament reasons to not get one. But it's not that verse in the Old Testament. Because we're not under the law. There's another verse right near there that says not to shave the hair between your eyebrows. It says not to trim the corner of your beards. And worst of all, it says not to eat bacon. I want to trim my beard and I want to trim the hair because I look like Bert from Sesame Street if I... <sighs> Hebert. Uh, um, we, need, we need to put stuff in the right context. And if you don't put it in the right context, then you won't be able to answer difficult questions like, but the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. That's about context. That's about when it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, and all of that. And by answering these questions, you can rightly divide the word of truth. Because remember I said, it's not about figuring out what does this passage mean to me, or what does this passage mean to you, or what does this passage mean to an important pastor, what did Martin Luther think of it, what did John Calvin think of it, who cares? What did God mean when he said it? That's what's important. Whatever I say about it, or you say about it, or anyone says about it, isn't what's important. What's important is what did God mean when he wrote it? So you've got to ask these questions. Where was it written? When was it written? Why did it need to be written? What was the author's goal? How was it to be accomplished? And who was it addressed to? See, the what, who, where, how, when, why, all those things, the faithful serving men that Kipling talked about, that makes all the difference in what it means. If I walk in this room, if I, you know, if I walk in here and I go, wow, it's cool in here. That means one thing. If I walk in here and go, whew, cool in here. That means something totally different. What's the difference? I said the exact same words. Context. You watch a trial. The lawyers will try to make what someone said be something bad, but then when you go and put it in context, okay, it wasn't bad. See, people can twist things by pulling it out of context. Have you ever seen it on the news where they only give a little clip of what the politician said, and if you go back and put it in context, it says something totally different. I remember, 
And I'm no fan of his, don't get me wrong. But I remember the, this thing where Obama got up and he quoted somebody that was saying something bad about freedom of speech. And then he said, but we can't think that way. We need to have freedom of speech. And he was advocating for freedom of speech. But people who didn't like Obama took that video clip and just put a video clip of him. Now, don't get me wrong. Obama said plenty of bad things that I don't like. I'm not a fan of him or any of the politicians, really. They're all liars. But they took him out of context. They, they made him sound like he was against freedom of speech. Now, sometimes I wonder. But he, that's not, he was saying just the opposite in that speech. Whatever he really believes about freedom of speech. He was saying just the opposite in that speech. But they took just a little clip and played just that and then all the conservative Obama haters pass it around and what do they end up looking like? Fools. Because something was taken out of context and used. And they, yeah, they did it to Obama. They did it to Trump all the time. Now granted, <laughs> Trump was like feeding them fodder for this, but because... Uh, uh, he didn't have a very tight rein on his with speech. But they would twist his words. I mean, just, you would see them say, oh, look, he said this. And you know, because you saw the whole speech, he said something very different. You've experienced this before, right? You see, in fact, uh, he just did a, uh, a thing with Pierce Morgan, and they edited the thing to make it look like he got mad about one thing and got up and left an interview. When he didn't, that didn't happen. He totally edited it to make it look like Trump threw a fit when it didn't even happen. With editing, you can make the Bible say anything. But if we're going to be workmen who don't need to be ashamed, who correctly handle the word of truth, then we need to put it into context. We need to look at where was it written, when was it written, why did it need to be written, what was the author's goal, how was it to be accomplished, who was it addressed to, who wrote it, when, you know, all of these questions, the who, what, why, when, where, how, all of those questions need to be asked in every which way if we're going to properly understand God's Word. To study God's Word, we have to answer those questions. Q, here's the questions I use in studying a text. This is George Fall writing this. What prayer can I echo? Okay, so the person prays a prayer in the passage. How can I echo that prayer? What he means is, how can I learn to pray like that person? Daniel offers a prayer. How can I pray like Daniel? Jesus gives the model prayer. How can I pray like Jesus? We read Paul or, you know, somebody's prayer. How can I pray like that person? What prayer in the passage can I echo? What praise can I render? What in here do I read can I thank God for and praise God for? Or what praise did this passage give to God that I should be praising God for? He's, don't just say, okay, they did that. Say, how can, I, how can I imitate the good, right? When you read about people of great faith in the Bible, we should be saying, how can I be like them? How can I imitate them? How can I have Abraham's faith? How can I have Joseph's faithfulness, right? How can I have David's repentance? How can I have uh, Daniel's courage right those kind of things you know how can i have uh, the virtue of these people what command should i obey is there a command in here for me now there might be a command in there that isn't for you 
There, there might be a command in there that you don't have to obey, you know, right? Like if you're single and it's a command for married people, you're good. If you're married and it's a command for single people, you don't have to keep that command. Or if it's a command from the Old Testament to not eat bacon, you're not under that. That was a command for them, not for you. So not every command you read in the Bible necessarily be for you. But is there a command in there for you? Is there something in there that applies to you? When it's saying do this or don't do that, is that, is that for you? You better figure it out. Well, how do I know? Look at the context. What, where, who, when, how, why? And if it's for me, then what command should I obey? Now, by the way, this list of 15 things, these are things you ask to study and tomorrow what we're going to learn is these, once you answer these questions, these are topics you can use when you give the lesson. Well, I've got to preach on uh, Matthew chapter 12. I don't know what to say. I just read it, but what do I say? Well, ask these questions, get the answers, and then give the answers to the people, and that's the lesson. Or maybe it's just one or two of them would eat up the whole sermon, the whole lesson. Um, what promise can I claim? Is there a promise in there that's made? Is it for me? Can I claim it? What warning should I heed? Is there a warning in there? Is it for me? What pitfall should I avoid? What did this person do that's a pitfall that I don't want to do? I sit and I see, uh, for example, Eli didn't discipline his sons and so they turned out bad. And then they became adults and he was the high priest, and they were priests, and they were uh, bringing prostitutes into the temple, and they were eating the fat of the sacrifices which they weren't supposed to eat. And, and Eli did not rebuke or remove his sons. He should have, he should have ha- had his sons removed. In fact, when they brought prostitutes in, his sons should have been executed. Because that was, that was the penalty under the law. But he wouldn't even tell his sons, don't do that. And... So God held Eli accountable and God killed Eli and his sons because he wouldn't rebuke his sons. So what, what pitfall can you avoid? That, hey, you can learn a lesson from that that turns out uh, God holds you accountable if you don't address the sin in your adult children's life. <laughs> you don't, the responsibility of your kids doesn't end at 18. Sorry. It's a lifelong responsibility. Um, what example should you follow? If somebody did something really good, how can I be like that? What example should I follow? What admonition should I regard? What facts should I remember? Are there certain facts in this passage that you should remember? Write them down, list them. What danger should I note? What is a danger in this passage? Oh, we, we see the story of... Uh, you know, some of David's sons, like one of his sons hung out with this bad guy who gave him bad advice about raping his sister. And because he hung out with this bad guy, he took bad advice and he, and he did something foolish and got him killed. You know, what, well, what's the danger we see? That if you hang out with stupid people and take stupid advice, it could get you killed. And that we think of the passage, uh, bad company corrupts good character. Okay, who I hang out with? See, that's a lesson you could derive from David's son's lives. Or what encouragement can I gain? What encouragement is there in there? Maybe it's a, a promise of resurrection. Maybe it's how God was with Abraham. Or maybe God watched over Jacob. Or when David repented, he forgave. He could be encouraged. God's forgiving. What encouragement? What attribute should I acquire? 
Patience, kindness, goodness. What, what virtue does the person of the story or the scripture teach that I should get? What commitment should I acquire? What fault should I repent of? What sin should I confess? What if every time you read a chapter of the Bible, you went through and answered those 15 questions about that chapter? You would understand that chapter. And you would be driving out of that chapter valuable thoughts that would make a good lesson. Do you see how how you study the Bible and how you teach the Bible are related? Good teachers are good studiers. Your study and your teaching are related. You can't have good output without good input. And if you don't understand, and the way you understand is by asking questions. It, it's called the Socratic method. You ask questions to learn. I ask lots of rhetorical questions in my message tonight. I ask a question, no, none of you answered, thankfully. Uh, you understood, that's a rhetorical question. But I ask lots of rhetorical questions, don't I? Um, because that engages the brain and makes you think. There's questions. Some additional questions I ask about the text. What's the key idea of the passage? If you're going to boil down the passage to one idea, what's the main point? That's a very important question. Because from that, everything else will flow. What's the main point of the passage? What's the key word in the passage? What's a key word? What's the, uh, there, a lot of times a passage will have a word repeated again and again. Or one word will set up the whole thing. It's all about that one word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's it about? Love. That's right. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love. Hebrews chapter 11 is about what? You see what I'm saying? And there's lots of passages like that where there's one word that's a key word. So if you're going to preach on 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to preach about love. If you're going to preach on uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to preach about faith. The one word in the passage that's dominant is going to set up the theme of your lesson. Look for what's the key idea, what's a key word. There are reoccurring phrases in the passage. If there's a reoccurring phrase, focus in on that. When we studied 1 and 2 uh, Timothy and Titus, there's a reoccurring phrase that he had in those. And, and we had five of them. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying. This, uh, you'll find some things that happen on repeat. And, and preachers do that. Authors of the Bible do that. The Holy Spirit does it. Jesus did it. There's repeating patterns. Look for the reoccurring phrases. How does it fit with the main gist of the book? Okay, so before you can study... Colossians chapter 3, you need to understand what all of Colossians is about. Understand the big picture, and then you'll know where to place the piece. Just like with that puzzle. You set up, remember, you would set up the, the box, and you would see the whole picture, and that would help you know where to put the little pieces. And you can understand Colossians chapter 3 better when you understand the overall point of the book of Colossians. Who wrote it? Who it was written to? When it was written? Why it was written? What Paul was addressing when he wrote it? What the people in Colossae were dealing with? When you understand that, then chapter 3 is easier for you to interpret correctly. 
However, are there any con- uh, contrasts in the passage? Now, if you're reading anything written by the Apostle John, look for the contrasts. John is obsessed with light and dark. If you read the book of Revelation, it's constant. There's the, the virgin in the wilderness contrasted with the whore sitting on seven hills. There's the lamb and the lion contrasted with the dragon. There's, there's constant contrasts in all of John's writing, especially in the book of Revelation. But even in the Gospel of John, um, it, when it, it, he was the light of the world, but it didn't recognize him. The light that shone in the darkness, right? He's constantly contrasting good, evil, truth, lies, light, darkness, blah, blah, blah. Look for the contrast. That makes for good understanding of a passage. The Bible is full of contrasts. Look, look and list any contrasts. Are there any Old Testament passages quoted in the text whose context will broaden the passage? Sometimes going, you'll see a little note. It'll say, this is the New Testament author is quoting this. Go back and look what it says. It'll help you understand it. It'll give you a broader understanding. So if there's a quote from another passage, go back and read the other passage and understand it so you can understand how the author is using it here. Are there any unique Greek words in the passage? Or, for that matter, any unique Hebrew words in the passage? If you look at it and there's a word that's unique or might give an insight, uh, you can learn that. And you can, uh, there's concordances. You can do a thing called an interlinear. Uh, You can get on your Google, type in interlinear New Testament, and it'll have English, and below it, it'll have the word in Greek. You can click on the word in Greek, and it'll give you this definition in Greek. It is simple as pie to look up what a Greek word is in anything in the New Testament if you've got a computer. I mean, it is simple. uh, Any elementary school kid could be taught to do it. It's that easy. Um. Are there any Greek words translated differently elsewhere that will throw light on the passage? Sometimes uh, a Greek word will be translated two different ways in the same Bible. And so by looking at how else the Greek word is used, it'll help you understand uh, what the word means in this context. So let's say you're, you're reading it and you're like, well, what does that word mean? Look the word up in Greek and then look at that word and find out everywhere else in the New Testament the word's used and it might help you understand the passage. So many times... It gets unlocked to me what the author is trying to say, what God's trying to say, when I compare the Greek word with other passages and see how it's used elsewhere. And the light bulb comes on. Okay, now I get it. Um, What is the author's mindset? Uh, What is the mindset of the person writing? What is the error he is correcting? Is it Judaizers? Is it Gnostics? You know, what, what, what false teaching was he teaching against? That'll help you understand it. Is there any origin in the Greek word that makes the meaning plain? Um, subverting is catastrophe. Canker is gangaria. Uh, I think we just, when we were going through Timothy, we just talked about that. How it says, it translates that it says that the false teaching will spread like a cancer. And then I pointed out that that Greek word is gangaria. And we all know what gangrene is. And so it helps us understand. Are there any word pictures in the Greek? Sometimes words used uh, are illustrated are a word picture. Like, for example, often what's translated as patience in the nearly inspired version, the NIV, is translated in the King James as long-suffering because that's actually a more accurate meaning. It means to suffer long. We translate it as the idea of patience, but their word for patience had at its root the word long and the word suffering. That helps you understand what means to be patient. It means to suffer long. 
Is anyone mentioned in the text spoken of elsewhere? Uh, look that up. So if you look up where they're used elsewhere, it'll help you understand. Like for instance, we were at the end of the gospel of, uh, or of the letter to Second Timothy, and it, Paul says, send Mark to me because he's useful to me. When you go back and find out who Mark was and Paul's history with Mark, all of a sudden that comment has more meaning. And it makes for a good lesson and a good, a good teaching because you understand who he is. Does any other scripture express a very similar idea? Um, you can look up in concordances. You can get a, a, a book, a hard copy of a concordance, or you can look up concordances on, um, for example, if you uh, want to look up other verses that might be related. Say you're wanting to teach a lesson on John 3.16. Go on Google and type in there, John 3.16 cross-references. Hit search. A whole bunch of different things come up. There'll be one for these different Bible sites. Click on it, and it'll have the verse, John 3.16, and they'll have all these cross-references, all verses that teach similar ideas. Use cross-references to find other passages that might be related to it. That idea of finding cross-references is also called a concordance. Some of you all got study Bibles, and you've got that in the back of your Bible. It's already in your Bible. You're just not using it. But you can look up a verse and it'll tell you other verses that say similar things. And also, if an account is given in multiple places and some of the stories in the Bible are in multiple places, like in the Gospels especially, the story will be toward in all four or maybe three of the Gospels and you want to read the other accounts because they'll give some details that the other one didn't give and give you insight into the story. And so you want to be able to do cross-references and find what other verse covers this idea. Now, some things to remember. You can understand the passage if you know the mindset of the author, who and why. If you understand the situation he was in, when and where. If you understand the goal of his writing, what and how. And the error he was refuting, almost every epistle was written to refute a specific error. You can understand the passage when you can communicate the main idea or theme when you find a similar situation that exists today and you apply the, the lesson with practical application. See, now we're getting into writing the lesson there. So when you study, you're looking for the main theme and then you want, well, how am I going to write a lesson on it? Think of a similar situation today and apply the lesson from the story or the doctrine in the scripture to the modern applied thing. And that's how you write lessons. Here are six basic things involved in Bible study. Not an exhaustive list, but these are six things, definitely. Repetition of the subject matter. Don't just read the passage once. Read it over and over. Concentration on the subject matter. Think about it. Reflect on the ideas involved. Comprehension of the ideas. That's why you outline, so that you know that you comprehended it and you've got it in an orderly fashion in your brain. Incorporate the concept into your own thinking. Think of somewhere in your life that something similar happened or, you th or applies to you. Okay? So, for example, uh, Daniel couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. So he couldn't eat the king's meat. Or drink the king's wine. So he says, I just want to eat fruits and vegetables. Okay? So how would that apply to us today? Well, we don't want to look like we're involved in it. Was there anything necessarily wrong with eating the king's meat and drink? No, it wasn't inherently wrong. But it made Daniel look, if he ate it, like he was worshiping the gods of the Babylonians. 
So in order to abstain from the appearance of evil, which the New Testament, that's a New Testament principle, to abstain from the appearance of evil, he did do that. So I gave an illustration earlier, but how might we abstain from the appearance of evil? Is not do something that even looks bad. When I was uh, preaching at Jerome, we had a children's minister and a youth minister, and we went out to do some planning one day. At, we were going to go and we were going to eat at a, uh, a Chili's restaurant, and then we were going to come back. After we ate, the youth minister had to go to the hospital and call someone in the hospital. So we couldn't all ride together because he wanted to leave from the restaurant and go to the hospital. And Allison, she says, well, I'll just ride with you. I'm like, nope. And she was like 25 years old and I was 40. I don't know how old it was. And so she's like, why not? And I says, well, I don't want it to look bad for me and you to be alone together. And she's like, ew. <laughs> and I said, I'm not thinking you're going to do anything. I know I'm not attracted to you. You know you're not attracted to me. We know there's nothing going on. But that's not the issue. The issue is, if we go to this restaurant, and then somebody in church says, I saw Kendall and Allison ride out to dinner together and riding home together, then, then we're not abstaining from the appearance of evil. And so just like Daniel wouldn't eat the meat and drink the drink, I wouldn't ride in the car with Allison. Much to her chagrin. She, didn't, she thought that was stupid, but I know I wasn't. Um... So you abstain from the appearance of evil. That's a principle. And you're applying it to your situation. So incorporate the ideas into your life, into your own thinking, an application to the lifestyle of you and your listener. No, you not only got to think of your situation, you think of the situation of the people you're teaching. And that's where application comes in. So when you're studying the Bible, you want to be able to take the idea and boil the idea down to something that you can apply to the 21st century. And the Bible is very practical in that way. And even though their circumstances and their culture and their language and their world was very different, the truths, the timeless truths, still apply today. So don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. See, when we study God's word and we allow it to change our mind, that's what I just said. Study it, repeat it, think about it, meditate on it, look at it every angle, who, what, when, how, where, why, understand it, incorporate it so much that you've got it so that you could outline it so that you know it then apply it to your life and to the life of people around you that's how you renew your mind and are able to test and approve in the situations i am what's god want me to do that's how bible study works and if you learn the facts daniel didn't eat meat sacrificed idols and didn't drink but you don't apply it to you you don't apply the concept of abstaining from the appearance of evil to you then you've missed the whole point of it. Because the, God doesn't just want you to know what happened to Daniel. Those stories aren't just there, so we got something to do in Sunday school. Those are to be applied to our life. That's the point of it, is for it to correct, rebuke, encourage, train, instruct, so that we are thoroughly equipped for every good work, so that our minds are changed and think biblically in line with the Holy Spirit. And then what you want to do is take those concepts and how that's changed your mind and then communicate that with others so it changes their mind and lines their mind up and they can test and approve what God's will is. I'll close with, um, with the, what words mean. Now, I don't have to go through all of them, 
But these words are important because they help us interpret it right. One of the problems is, especially if you rock in the King James, words, meanings have changed over the years. That's why I encourage people to get a new King James or use a new American Standard or if you're desperate, use an NIV. Uh, But use a modern translation. The English Standard translation, uh, ESV is a good translation. That's a good, don't use a living Bible. First of all, no one knows what to feed it. And second of all, it's not, it's not a translation. It, it's, it's a paraphrase. The message Bible, paraphrase. Get rid of that thing. Or only use it for devotional purposes. If you want to study the Bible, get a translation. Okay? Get an actual translation. My favorite, New King James. Because it's the, based on the best original texts and it's the most static translation that's easily legible. Now you want the very most static word-for-word translation ever made in English. Then you get a 1901 American Standard. Not New American Standard, American Standard. The only people that print it now are Star Bible Publishers in Texas. Um, but the American Standard Bible, if you're on the internet, it's free because it's out of, it, it's past its, you know, where it's, it's public domain now. But the American Standard 1901 version is written at a college level, so it's not always the easiest to read. But if you want to know what does this passage say, not what is somebody interpreted to say, what, what's a really good, accurate translation? The American Standard translation is probably the best ever done in English. I would say the second best and much easier to read and understand is the New King James Version. Kendall's opinion. But these words, for, because, since, that's a reason or explanation. Okay? For, for example, when it says, we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of us who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. That word for there is the reason or explanation. You're a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? What's the reason? Because when you're baptized into Christ, you're clothed with Christ. And that gives a whole different understanding of what, how important baptism is when you understand what the word for means. The when, whenever, before, and after, that has to do with time. Where, when it, uh, wherever is place. So that, in order for, to, that's purpose. Then, therefore, wherefore, so that, result. So on and so forth. Look at that list. And so, uh, if you ever see a therefore, you see the word therefore? Go back and look at what it's there for. Because... Uh, it, it mean, therefore means that whatever you're going to read after is because of just what you read before. So if you're going to, if you go to, and sometimes therefore will be the worst first word in a chapter because so, the guy who put the chapter divisions put it right there. Those chapter divisions and verse divisions weren't there. They're not inspired. Somebody put those in hundreds of years later. And so sometimes you'll start a chapter and it'll say, therefore, let us, well, we'll look and see what the therefore is there for. Go back and look before it. And see what is the reason he's saying this. If there's a therefore, go back and see, because it's going to give the reason before that we should believe this. So these words are important. So what those words mean, you can look through that, and that's important. That's a little reference sheet that you've got right there that'll help you understand. Um, And then questions to ask uh, when studying the Bible. What's the main point of the passage? Who's talking? Who's he talking to? When and where is the author? When writing and speaking? What prompted this passage? 
Is this recorded elsewhere in Scripture? What arguments does he give to support his position? What are other texts quoted? List the contrasts. List those who we are to believe from this passage. List what we're to do according to this passage. List the analogies or metaphors used in this passage. List the characters and their perspective in this passage. And list different doctrines, both good or bad, listed in this passage. Well, Kendall, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Study to show yourself approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. I have done this so much at the end of page 19. I have done those questions so much. It's intuitive. I don't go through this list. I don't pull out a list and answer. Now, for you who are just starting out, use this list. Literally, pull this list out. Take out a piece of paper in a study passage and write the answers to these down. Do that long enough, you'll do it naturally and you won't even have to think about it anymore you'll start to naturally digest the text. That's how you chew the Word of God right there. These are your teeth. These questions are your teeth to chew up a passage so you can digest it and make it part of you.